Vince Marconi, David Rimland, and Susan Richardson are all joining us for the, Dr. VA. the interactive case discussion from the panel, which is going to open up with uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Michael Sag from UAB. Okay, so this is wrap-up time, and we're going to try to put together a lot of what we heard today um, and just kind of put it into a practice setting. Uh, the first case is sort of the usual one that um, I start off with almost every year, and the answers change, and I'm just curious to see how they're going to change this year. I will say this is one of these off-label deals or not even available, but you heard data earlier today about the quad, and you also heard about dolutegravir. We're going to assume those we're a year from now, and those drugs are on the market and approved for your use, and you've seen data about their efficacy in clinical trials, at least uh, in initial therapy and somewhat in um, a salvage situation. But um, just assume those drugs are available to you as we go through it, and also assume that cobacistat as an individual agent as a booster, so think of it as ritonavir, except a little bit different, uh, that that's also available. So anytime we talk about a PI, you can either boost it with ritonavir or cobacistat. So we have a 30-year-old guy who comes in, routine exam, insurance exam, diagnosed positive. His history is, un, is remarkable only for diet-controlled hypertension, been very healthy his whole life. He understands the treatment issues. He's, you talk to him, he's ready to start if you want him to. There's no other comorbid conditions or anything like that. You check him and his viral load's 30,000, the CD4 count is 650. Assuming all else being equal, would you recommend starting therapy? Yes, no, not sure. Go ahead and vote. Oh, I've got, ah, I forgot I had control. Thank you. Yeah. Whoops. I didn't have that much control. Should we, let's try voting again. Can we do that? Yeah, here we go. Yeah, that was in a Twilight Zone experience. Yeah. in another place and time. It's not only sight and sound, but of mind. <laughs> All right, we've got similar answers. Wow, so Carlos, you've been at this meeting almost every oh, day. Let me go to Dave Rimland, because he really, I think, has been at every You have to. Veteran. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're the 20-year veteran, Dr. Rimland. You're in that 3%. You've come to this meeting. You remember if I'd asked this question seven years ago, the answer would have been not only no, no. but hell no. So tell me what you think's going on. Why are so many people saying yes? Well, I think it's a combination of things. It's, a, it's an issue of uh, we have data now saying that HIV is bad regardless of what your CD4 viral load is. We have drugs that are much easier to tolerate with much less toxicity. And uh, we have public health issues in terms of potential limited transmission to others. So I think balancing the things that we used to balance in the past has all gone to the side of treatment. And there are situations certainly of Comorbidities, we clearly now say, ought to be treated. And there are really very few situations where a patient shouldn't be treated if they right. want to be and they're willing to take drugs. Right. And I realized before I go much further, I was rude, and we didn't have our panel get introduced. Or just, so maybe we can, everyone knows Dr. Lennox, Dr. DeRio. Let's go to uh, Wendy. Or Susan. Okay. Um, Susan Richardson. I'm a nurse practitioner, and I've been in HIV care for about 16 years. I work at Southeast AIDS Training and Education Center as an instructor and two days a week at Aid Gwinnett, a Ryan White Clinic um, in the suburbs north of Atlanta. Great. Thank you. Dave. Uh, Dave Remland at the Atlanta VA. I've been uh, treating HIV for over 30 years now and been to 20 of these meetings. Um, Wendy. I'm Wendy Armstrong at uh, Emory. Um, I'm the medical director of the IDP or the Ponce Clinic, as most people know it. And I haven't been doing this as long as you, Dave. <laughs> But it's at least in the double digits. But you agreed with his last answer. Yeah, Vince. Yeah. I'm Vince Marconi, and if uh, Dave Remlin and Wendy Armstrong had a son, I would be that person. <laughs> <laughs> I work at both the VA and at Grady, as well as in South Africa. Everyone is tweeting about that now. <laughs> no, I, think, I think, Mike, going back to the yes, previous case. Yes, please. Uh, you know, I think the most important component right now to me is the patient was ready. And I think I don't, I think we should forget because of the things Dr. Rimland said about his CD4 count. And if the patient is ready, that's the best time to start. The, uh, you know, I would propose that, you know, and we're going this direction, but I would propose that we start thinking about 
opt out antiretroviral therapy. Yeah. It should be for everybody except that those that decline it. And just like we have opt out HIV testing, I wish at some point the guidelines would go to opt out treatment for HIV. And in some ways, they kind of had their, you know, they're drifting that way. The, the most recent HHS guidelines basically says treat anybody in any CD4 count, and then they go into the strength of the recommendation is most evidence-based with 350 or less, a little bit less solid evidence, but good evidence at, at, at uh, 500 or less, and then Reasonable evidence, although not randomized trials at 500 or higher, but I think you're right. And this is something that I was sitting around one day just kind of talking with Paul Volberting, and we literally on, on the back of an envelope said, why are we arguing about this? You've got a 30-year-old. You're going to put them on treatment today based on the data the trip showed us. You know, if they're 650 today, they'll be 500 in five years or so. So you're talking about a relative difference of 40 years versus 35 years. If they lived to age 70, if they lived to age 80, it's even more absurd. What's the big deal? I mean, they're going to be on lifelong therapy. It's not like we're going to treat them once and then back away. So we don't talk about this for hypertension or hypercholesterol too much, right? We just treat it. And, and the other example is that there is some data that HIV may be progressing more rapidly in people who are infected more recently. So it may not be five years. You may be gaining two years on yep. treatment. And, and then the question is, of course, in that five years, could there be harm? I don't know. I mean, they're ultimately going to be on. We've already talked about 052, but that's become another reason is to protect. I like the term treatment is prevention rather than as prevention. Uh, but let's now we've, we've agreed, at least the majority in the audience, and it feels like the majority of the panels. Anybody feel differently in a strong direction on the panel, represent the 30%? Wendy or Vince? No? You guys are okay? All right. So now what are we going to start them with as far as the baseline nuke? We're going to assume all the laboratory studies are normal. He's got wild-type virus. What's your choice? Are you going to use any kind of new combination, or are you going to use another choice or no nukes at all? Y'all got that one? That's what I did. No. Avengers? No. It was the Avengers. Hey, I pulled that one out of somewhere. Um, okay. So split out the panel. Yeah, let's split out the panel here. Is anybody? I don't think we can. But anybody uh, who would not go with an Avenger FTC here? All right. So let's hear the panel. Uh, Jeff, panel. Well, the reason I answered that is that you know I think that. Because of the co-formulation with dolutegravir and how powerful that is, you said it was available. It's available. So I assumed I had a vacabir 3 to see dolutegravir. And he's HLA B5701 negative if you read the fine print on the bottom of the package insert right here on this slide. And his viral load is 30,000. That's why I also went with that. All right. ABC. All right. Got some modern people. We got heads nodding. Anybody want to sort of counter it? <laughs> Say, no, no, Tanafir FTC? Yep, Vince. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if... And again, depends on, on the data. And if you believe it, with, with a lower viral load, you could use Complera uh, in that circumstance and have less side effects neurologically with that. I know we haven't been using it as enough first-line therapy, but I think it's an option for someone who might have that as an issue. Yeah. So I'm liking this. I mean, again, compared to 10 years ago, we didn't have these kinds of options. These are not only effective regimens, they're generally well-tolerated. I don't mean that like they usually say, and the, it worked and it was generally favorably tolerated. That this, they actually are well-tolerated. And if we can't find a regimen that people can take that doesn't make them feel bad, then we haven't done our job. We can usually find that. So, so, and I think, you know, you say this over and over, and I, I totally agree, is that, that adherence is all about tolerability. If you tolerate right. the regimen, you're going to take it. If you don't tolerate the regimen, you're not going to take it. So, so the, most, the best predictor of adherence is tolerability. Yeah. I mean, I'll speak first person. I mean, I'm on some medicine for blood pressure, et cetera, and I don't want to take something that makes me feel bad. And, you know, there were some prior medicines I tried that gave me a headache or whatever. I didn't want to take it for 30 years. I've jumped off that and onto something else. We should like any other disease, right? Okay. So now as far as the other drug in the anchor, we've already had some of our panel tip their hand, but what does the audience feel? Assume he's CCR5-tropic, you got that back somehow magically. Um, what would you choose to put him on with 30,000 viral load and 650? Go ahead and vote. Good evening. Uh, only the old people laughed, or those who watched Nick at Night. <laughs> that was Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, wow, a rainbow. 
It's the most diverse and inclusive group I think I've seen in a long time. Wow. Let's see. Wendy, you want to tell us what you were thinking? I mean, I think there's a lot of good choices up there. And I think uh, uh, I'd have be hard-pressed to, to argue that there's one definite right answer. I think um, the one definite right answer for me is a once-a-day drug. Um, and for me, it's usually very important to sort of uh, to go through side effects and so on with my patients and see what they are anxious to tolerate or what seems to be a more tolerable set of side effects. It's getting pretty hard, I think, uh, as, as uh, things evolve to not start looking at the quad pill and uh, and diatigravir if it's co-formulated and so on, um, with a really low side effect profile compared to efavirenz. Yep. Um, Complera has been mentioned, but, um, but uh, I think any of the once-a-day choices are very reasonable. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a wrong answer here that 2.3% went for, we've got to mention, That's right? Because nevirapine might be a reasonable choice, except with a CD4 count of 650, it's a little bit of an unacceptable risk right. for... Uh, liver toxicity. So if the CD4 count was, was 100, I think nevirapine might be a reasonable choice or 250 up to 400 in a man. But um, otherwise, other thoughts? I mean, I, I love this because this just tells us that we have options, and that's good. But I think it goes back to what was said by Wendy that, you know, you can see reltegavir really dropping compared to, uh, to you know, integrase inhibitors that you can give once a day. Yeah. So there was a question that just came in from the audience about cost. Does that enter your mind at all, or the VA or other places? Absolutely. Really? And tell me how. What do you think? Well, for me, it's a dream that dolutegravir would even be available, much less um, patient assistance. Uh, initial therapy. Right, as initial therapy. So that's what I picked, but it's... Uh, we don't know what it's going to cost. Uh, we can assume it's going to be priced similar to raltegravir, I would bet. Uh, David? Well, essentially at the VA, you know, cost is not a, a major issue. You know, decisions are based on uh, national formulary decisions, and they certainly look at cost. But for HIV care, really it's a fairly minor component of everything else that's going on. And I think uh, there really are not major differences, and I think it's, it's going to sort out. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with monitoring and a lot of other things that we do that how much else do you have to do that uh, adds right. some cost to what's happening? So, no, it's not a big issue for the VA in terms of making decisions about not what just, to put on national formula. Not just yet. So let's uh, challenge our Rainbow Coalition and ask Jesse Jackson if his CD4 count was 650 and his viral load was 310,000. 65. Uh, what did I say? I think it's 650. Sorry, 65. Right. If his no. CD4 count was 65 and his viral load was 310,000, now what would you recommend, everything else being the same? Let's go ahead and vote. Jim Lang, right? Isn't it? Dating game? Great. Yeah. All right, that's all American. Oh, the rainbow is torqued a little bit. So we have a lot more darunavirs. We have a fair amount more efavirenz, relatively speaking. Um, we've lost etravirine. We didn't have much of that. But ropivirine is still there. Folks want to comment about the choices here? Well, I would say ropivirine is certainly not a good choice based on the data. Uh, for people with viral loads over 100,000, I don't do as well. So right. I think that knocks it out in, in that situation. Okay. And I would not want nevirapine, for example, well, because, again, a twice-a-day regimen. If mm. you look at, at the preferred regimen, the guidelines, it, you know, some of them are there. Fabrins, yeah. Adesanavir. Well, you could there. use the extended release or the, the, the nevirapine right. sort of slow release. The neck would be once a day. Yeah. Um, so no real absolute wrong answer, except perhaps ropivirine is a little bit dicey because of that greater than 100,000. But I think the other point that someone asked Tripp, and the Q&A was about alvotegravir below or above 100,000. I think that question came in from somewhere near Montgomery or Opelika, and um, it was a good question. So uh, the answer was it worked about the same. I, so, I think back on that one, though, you still have to look at the patient. And so if I'm looking at a patient with a CD465 <clears> and it's one of in viral load of 350,000, um, whether I'm looking at the, the quad pill, which would be a great, you know, very attractive alternative, or something Once. like darunavir, depends entirely on whether I think this patient is going to have a high likelihood yeah. of treatment interruptions and you know, one consistency and all those yeah. pieces as well. Yeah, easier treatment. That's a good point. So now let's try to define what virologic failure is. 
And we'll assume that the cutoff is 20. Your, your viral load in your system goes down to 20. So less than 20 would be the undetectable range. How would you define uh, what uh, virologic failure? And remember, you are at an IAS USA meeting. I don't want to bias your answer. <laughs> Five o'clock somewhere. Okay. Whoo! Another rainbow, sort of. How would you all define failure? And it has to be more than one. I should have said that. More than one right. occurrence. Yeah. I mean, I really think it depends on when you've been looking at it. I mean, I, you know, 10 years ago, I would have defined it differently because simply of what we had available. I think what is more convincing, and I actually answered number one, I mean, there's now data that people that have low-level blips over 20 don't do as well long-term as the people that were under 50 or under 200 or 400. So I'm getting convinced that that may really be an important thing to monitor in terms of ultimate outcomes and mm -hmm. immunologic responses. Alternative views? I'm at the 200 levels, yeah. because, you know, because, I, well, I believe, I mean, I think David is absolutely right. The recent evidence of, of what is the significance of blips, again, it's, a, it's, it's an ever-changing. We heard for many years that blips didn't mean much. You know, some more recent data says, well, maybe blips do mean something, and it actually continuous blipping makes, makes a difference. But, uh, but still, when you're talking about getting, thinking about doing resistant testing and thinking about changing therapy and all the things that implies, you know, 200 is usually when we start looking. Yeah. So, David, I'd like to follow up on your statement. So if you had somebody with three viral loads in a row that were 20 to 50, you would change their therapy at that point? No, but we'd at least talk to them about adherence. Yeah. I mean, the reason I'm bringing it up is sort of interesting. I think we mentioned the case of the week recently. We, we started using the, the ultra, you know, the, the, uh, the quant PCR in less than 20 now. It turns out that of the people that we actually had less than 50, 80 percent are under 20. So I think you can actually reach it, and I, yeah. I'm just I'm getting more convinced that it may make a difference long term. And it's, if it's feasible to do, even in our kind of clinic situation, yeah. I think it's something that works so for My question for the panel is, do we need a randomized study where you take people between 20 and 50 and randomize them to change therapy, or do we need longer observational data? What would be the most convincing? Or what would you... I don't think you'll ever be able to do the study. Yeah, <laughs> I think the longitudinal data. Could, I think we could probably answer it with, with longitudinal data to somewhat. But the reason I brought it up is just to point out. I was trying to think of things that were on the cutting edge these days to bring to the conference. And it, there is a debate that's emerging again because there's a new test, as David talked about, less than 20. And less than 200 has been adopted by the ACTG because historically, as long as they were less than 200, typically over time, there were not. There was not evidence of ongoing uh, emergence of resistance mutations, which says that maybe it's sort of a, the latent cell population firing off some virus that's detectable, Vince? Yeah, I mean, maybe I might uh, make a distinction, at least in this discussion. One is, what is the concern for uh, viral replication, the emergence of drug resistance? The other might be, what is the concern for ongoing replication in as much as you might not get drug resistance in virologic failure or rebound, but you may get all the consequences of having ongoing replication, yeah. especially in the setting of someone being on a boosted PI. And I think if you use it as a monitor to identify individuals who may not be as adherent on, say, a PI-based regimen, then I might uh, apply more adherence measures in that circumstance. Right. So uh, just to kind of move on, the, another part of the debate that Vince just sort of alluded to, it has a lot to do with cure research. And there's two camps emerging among those who are sustaining undetectable levels or having small blips to 50 to 100 or maybe 150 copies about whether there is ongoing de novo replication. And one group says there is all the time, even when they're less than 20, there's going on. And other people say, well, that's hogwash, because if it were, more people not only would be progressing, but they'd be progressing with resistant virus, and we're not seeing that. As you can tell maybe from the affect in my voice, I'm much stronger in that latter camp. I just don't think... There's much ongoing replication, but we can ask about that next year. I want to give uh, time, equal time for my co-leader here. So I'm going to move on. This is a pretty quick case. Looks awfully familiar, just like our other guy, except this time his viral load is 330,000. The CD4 counts 250, so I changed it around a little bit more. And just sort of anticipating what you were going to say, 
and I think I got it pretty close. You have these fixed dose combinations or boosted darunavir that could be with ritonavir or cobacistat or some other fixed dose combination. Which would you choose of these options? Go ahead and vote. Charlie's Angels. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The fixed doses win. Fine. That's fine. But you know what? It's, irrele it's irrelevant. Why? Because you write the prescription and you get a phone call or a fax. <laughs> the patient's insurance company says it's been changed that it's opening 3TC in the because they're on formulary as generic. Your response WTF? <laughs> and you tell them to shove it. Remember from, uh, you remember from uh, uh, the movie with, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Field of Dreams, when they talked about uh, the guy coming down, who told him to shove it. So you do that. Carefully explain the toxicity and efficacy are inferior and write a formal appeal and you spend hours doing that. Or you agree to try the generic, which would you do? <laughs> Remember Shoeless Joe Jackson, where, you know, was talking with him, and we told him to shove it. Yeah, there we go. Oh, I'm disappointed. Oh. But you know what? If you look carefully, that's kind of giving a middle finger of responses. So it's just... Bravo. Bravo. I knew I'd get it in here somehow. So... David, you're at the VA. They, the on high uh, told you to do nevirapine. What would you do? They wouldn't tell us to do that. So okay, so let's move on. <laughs> Wendy, would they do that at Grady? Um, we have actually run into this. Tell uh, us about it. And it's been incredibly frustrating. And uh, I would strongly um, endorse approach one or two, but two is probably going to get me drugged to my patient better. <laughs> yeah, one may get you fired, but maybe that's a good thing. Who knows? So, but, um, so other thoughts? Uh, Anybody would just go ahead and go with it? Some would in the audience, 21%. I mean, I, I think the ones in the audience are saying, well, if I go with it, the patient will at least get on treatment. And over the short term, besides nausea and anemia, right. maybe the toxicity isn't that bad, and then I can try and switch them. But, you know, I think we have to resist that impulse. I think we need to fight people that try and make us use our medication that's toxic. Okay. I'm going to play equipoise here just for the moment. Well, I'll tell you that in the new HHS guidelines, they actually have the cost of generics. And it turns out, for the moment, they're not a whole lot cheaper than the brand name. So this isn't germane. But if we extrapolated from Africa, and you could use the equivalent of Trayavir, uh that's all generic, AZT3TC, Nevirapine, and you could spend $400 for a year's worth of medicine versus $15,000. Look how many more people you could treat. And you could say, well, it's not going to work in everyone, but it will work in 50%. So you take that delta of dollars and you say 50% are going to do fine. We don't know until we try it. Let's try it and see what happens. You know, I'm not, I'm not a crazy guy, but I think you're going to see more and more of this. And these are where the generic patterns are going, and this is the future. This is where we're headed. Uh, and we're going to be, for the time being, the drugs will be a little bit inferior because of the 1990 drugs coming into generic now. But you can see that by 2017, we're going to have some reasonable treatment options, and it's going to be an interesting challenge. But typically the generic so far price hadn't come down. So, Jeff, let me turn it over to you so we stay on time. And I think, Mike, the issue is not only going to be the generic issue, but actually in many plants the restricted formulary of saying, you know, we're only going to have two nukes. You know, yeah. we're only going to have one of these. And, and that may be an issue. Right. And you were, you were saying, why, don't, why aren't they treating Georgia like a uh, PEPFAR country? Well, that would be part of the consequence. Right. <laughs> so be careful what you wish for. Okay, great. The next uh, case is changing uh, focus. We're looking at somebody who's having a complication of HIV. So this is a 24-year-old male, newly diagnosed, no past medical history, you know, other, everything's fine. His HIV RNA is 155,000. His T cells are 300, so we've caught him relatively early. He's HLA-B57 negative, genotype negative. Unfortunately, he's got a creatinine of 2.3 with 3-plus proteinuria, creatinine clearance of 49, and an evaluation that's consistent with Hyvan. He didn't get a biopsy. This is actually a new patient I saw about a month ago. Uh, but he's got heavy proteinuria. His kidneys are a little bit enlarged. They're echogenic, and... The sediment is quiet, so pretty convincing that he's got high man. Next. 
So the questions are, with regard to the selection of the nucleosides, given what we know, which of these would you use? Uh, choose your choice. I don't know, were these automated? Doesn't look like it. Choose your just, just, yeah, just hit the forward button. There you go. Okay, go ahead and choose. <laughs> Okay. You got to hit the button. Got to hit the button. Okay. So it looks like uh, pretty strong preferences. Panel? Anybody think that a back of your 3TC is the obvious um, choice? Agree with the majority of the obvious audience? I would say better, but. It, it's a, it's, it's a uh, relative harm question, isn't it? Yes. Because you don't want to go with tenofovir in this setting. Sure. Zidovudine, possibly, but again, more toxicity, maybe some anemia. Uh, so you're really left, in my view, with either one or five. And one means that, you know, it is above 100,000 and it's not going to work as well, but it still can work. So it's not a crazy answer. But I think what I would do is go to some nuke sparing regimen or throw in some FTC or 3TC and uh, use maybe a non-nuke and a PI together or something like that. Any other opinions from the panel? No, I, I think this answer has changed a lot over a couple of years, and I think we, we really do have some non-nuke options now would be very reasonable. Somebody with mild renal sufficiency, and I would agree with the last answer. Okay. The reason I wanted to put this in is it's still a relatively common problem, and I'm on the uh, IADSA renal panel, and we've been arguing this case for about six months before he walked into my clinic. And the nephrologist, which is half the panel, think that the ID people are completely insane and vice versa. And so there is no right answer. I can tell you from probably 60 hours of debate among this group, but I'd like to show you what some of the issues are. People already mentioned that he's got a high viral load and that Abacavir is more likely to fail. Um, if you look at renal toxicity in the San Francisco VA, this was data from Croy, Tenofovir was associated with a greater risk of creatinine clearance decline. Uh, and in many cases, if you let it decline and then stop the tenofovir, it did not appear to be reversible. Now, these were people who were already on tenofovir and developed signs of toxicity, which is not our patient. But, you know, we're used to thinking about, oh, in chronic people, it causes this toxicity. So in the acute setting, we shouldn't use it either. Um, I'm going to skip over this, but there are actually some data. I mean, obviously it's small data, but here in these two studies, six patients who had a creatinine clearance between 30 and 49 who got tenofovir, their creatinine clearance actually improved in most cases. And in South Africa, that got full-dose tenofovir by mistake and were followed very closely. Most of them uh, did fine on tenofovir, and their, act, and their renal function actually improved. And so um, let me back up. In this African study, most of their patients had high van, and we all know that when you treat patients with high van, the creatinine clearance does tend to improve. So there's some other cohort studies that I didn't list here that would indicate in patients with high van that get tenofovir, they're not as likely to develop nephrotoxicity as we would think. So the reason I think this is an important question is that, as Dr. Armstrong mentioned, we're all interested in once-a-day treatment, and it improves adherence. And so when you have somebody whose creatinine clearance falls below that magic 50 per mil, are you going to have to swear off all of the once-a-day regimens or only use the one that has a back of your 3TC because that one may or may not have a good partner drug. So if you are going to use an NRTI sparing regimen like Dr. Rimlin was advocating for, which one would you use? The atazanavir raltegravir Lopinavir-Raltegravir, Darunavir-Raltegravir, or atazanavir Maraviroc? And can we assume we can throw in FTC or 3TC? Yeah, you can throw in FTC, but, you know, if you're really talking about a pure nucleoside sparing regimen... Yeah, well, that's... Yeah. Not really. No, it isn't. Okay, well. You're right. No, no, I'm kidding. Wait, is, it, is, it, is the first one non-boosted then? Uh, that was what the trial was done with, non-boosted atazanavir plus raltegravir. That's why the atazanavir dose was BID, right. 300 milligrams BID. 
So all of these are things that have been carefully studied. So why don't we go ahead and have our votes? Okay, it looks like the majority would use a boosted PI with Darunavir having more votes and uh, Adazanavir coming in second and then a minority using any of the other two uh, regimens suggested. Panel, what are the advantages or anybody have a favorite among these? Raltegravir makes me nervous. <laughs> um, I think it's a great drug, but the low barrier to resistance bothers me a little bit. But it should be protected so I, by the boosted PI yeah. in the, in the post, most popular. Right. So I, I chose that. Uh, I think your point's well taken that especially Raltegravir with two nukes uh, is not quite as strong. But Darunavir by itself, Lopinavir by itself, has about an 80% activity rate just by itself. So I figured what's a little Raltegravir among friends, throw it in there, and then you might get up to, you know, close to 100. But your point's well, these are, it's a tough call. It's a tough call. I don't know what other people think. Um, no, I mean, I chose number three, too. And, I, and again, I think it's the, going back to the issue of you know, two versus three drug versus whatever, it's whatever potent regimen you've got. And yeah. I think that's a really potent regimen that should work. Yeah. I think your data from South Africa are, are, are strong. I just think I sit next to a nephrologist every other week in clinic, and she's got me where I don't even want to take a leave anymore, so I'm scared. I'm frightened. Well, I have to tell you that on the panel is a very noted HIV investigator who does both kidney disease and HIV treatment. And this person said, I don't care what their creatinine clearance is above 30. I only have two once-a-day treatment choices that are one pill and both of them contain Tenofovir, I start everybody on one of these and then monitor their creatinine clearance. And, you know, it sounds, you know, well, to dig in, to dig in a little bit, I, I think I appreciate the opinion, but let's say the creatinine clearance doesn't improve and you kind of always scratch your head going, gosh, mm -hmm. I wonder if it would have gotten better mm -hmm. uh, more so if I hadn't done it. It's just trying to right, avoid. But what's effort. driving his decision is adherence. Right? Yeah, yeah, I understand. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what makes the me nervous about Rotegra group, too. And we do have a related question from the audience, backing up just a little bit. You know, nobody on the panel really addressed dose reducing the tenofovir as is recommended in the FDA package insert. Is that an acceptable alternative, or do you just want to swear it off entirely? Any well, no, you would have to dose reduce it with a creatinine less of clearance less than 50. Right. So I was assuming you were using it every other day on the uh -huh. That's a good point. To but make. the data I was talking about was full strength. Oh, is that right? In the Ooh. setting of high band. Well, you know, not in other setting, not in other kidney diseases. Okay, well, you know, again, the panel discussed this not as intensively as tenofovir, and luckily there are no randomized studies that look at people with reduced creatinine clearance and these NNRTI sparing regimens. So everybody in the audience is correct. You can all pat yourself on the back. Your opinion is as good as anybody else's. So what did you do? What would I do? What did you do? Well, what your... did we do? Yeah. We said, like a good guidelines panel, there is no evidence to support a recommendation <laughs> for any of these choices. Yeah, but what did, you, what did you do? You said the patient came in. Oh, what did I do? Yeah. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> you told him, forget about it. There's no guidance. I don't know what to do. Go home. No. I started him on, he was B57 negative. And uh, after much discussion, I put him on a Bacavir 3TC and boosted out his Anavir because that's... And he did okay. He did fine. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so just one reason that there was so much debate on the panel is these have actually been studied in people without renal failure. You know, this, for example, was the... BID atazanavir plus raltegavir versus the regular dose atazanavir and, and tenofovir 3TC. And what you can see is that virologic efficacy was similar between the two groups. However, because raltegavir and atazanavir both use that UGTA, uh, UGT1 for excretion, there was a much greater risk of hyperbilirubinemia, grade 4 hyperbilirubinemia, in the people that were on the raltegavir atazanavir arm. So even though we think yellow eyes is a limiting toxicity on our standard Truvada atazanavir, 
It's even worse if you're using raltegravir, atazanavir, uh, as, your, as your treatment. Were you going to say something, Susan? I was just going to ask if that, uh, what the sequela was for that. So were these folks having symptoms? Or? No, it's asymptomatic hyperbilirubinemia, but this is grade four, meaning it was five times baseline. So their, their bilirubins, 13 out of 63, had greater than six bilirubin. So, you know, it's definitely a drug, uh, not an interaction, but a common metabolic pathway. This is a very potent, easy-to-take-twice-a-day symmetric regimen, but you're probably going to turn yellow if you chose that one. Um, Atazanavir plus Maraviroc, you can see there was a randomized study. In general, it looked good um, overall. Uh, however, if you look at people that had a higher viral load, there was a trend towards more virologic failure using the Atazanavir Maraviroc but it wasn't statistically powered to tell you whether this trend was true or just a coincidence. So the data is a little bit out on the Maraviroc. The darunavir raltegravir which was the one that most, most of the people in the audience chose, there was an ACTG study. It was a single-arm study, and 26% of the patients failed by week 48, and that's much higher than was seen in Truvada plus darunavir in the company-sponsored registrational trials. Uh, the higher your viral load, the more likely you were to fail, and the lower your raltegravir concentration, so if you weren't taking it, the more likely you were to fail. And there's also some recent data that indicates that raltegravir reduces the darunavir area under the curve. It's only about 18%, so most pharmacologists would say, well, yeah, there's an interaction, but it's not clinically significant. But the panel thought this was very concerning, this data from the ACTG and the recent pharmacology data, and didn't really feel that raltegravir or darunavir twice a day was an ideal option either. And then the lopinavir plus raltegravir twice a day, the PROGRESS study, this was reported a little bit over a year ago. It looked good virologically, but the people that got raltegravir plus boosted lopinavir were twice as likely to have CPK elevations, and many of these were grade three to four CPK elevations. So there appears to be something about lopinavir-rotonavir that might boost the effect that raltegravir has on CPK and muscle. So as you can see, not one of these dual combination therapies was considered to be equivalent to our current first-line regimens, and the panel felt that you shouldn't be treating patients with renal insufficiency with an inferior regimen. And we couldn't really recommend adding 3TC or FTC to this since there are no studies. And so we came away saying, okay, well, it would probably be an okay regimen, but really you should use the recommended regimens if at all possible. Any comments from the panel? Sometimes you have to act without data. Yes. <laughs> Frequently you have to act without data. Okay. Um, and we made all these points, basically. Okay. So now we're going to switch, uh, again, to a slightly different topic. This is a 42-year-old male, several year, uh, you know, decade history of HIV now. He's been on many, many antiretrovirals, on and off. He's currently on raltegravir, darunavir, and Truvada. CD4 counts better. Uh, his nadir was 6. Uh, but it's falling from previously. His HRD RNA is now 128,000, and he's got a pan-resistant phenotype, and he's got basically very few treatment options. What would you choose as the anchor drug? So again, he's failing raltegravir, darunavir, and he's on Truvada. So what would people use as their anchor drug for the next regimen? I'd ask Jethro Bodine <laughs> from Beverly Hillbillies. Okay. So, panel? Uh, that's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Number four. Yeah, I mean, you, you've told us that the dolitegravir will work even with other raltegravir or alpitegravir uh, resistance, and you really don't have any other choices there. Yeah, but your question is anchor with what? 
Yeah. Well, that's yeah. going to be another issue. True. He didn't right. ask that yet. <laughs> but I think the key point that probably Jeff will tell us in a minute is that the twice daily, that's the key operation. If you're going to use it for rescuing a failure of SS uh, strand transfer integrase inhibitors, it's got to be given twice a day. Right. And that was really my got to the essence. We didn't talk about it earlier, but when dolutegravir is released for treatment naive, it'll be a once a day drug. Assume that it gets released. But for salvage, you've got to get higher levels. You're not going to be able to salvage, most likely based on the available data, a raltegravir failure with dolutegravir. So that was just the teaching point from that one. Now, there are recent changes in how to treat tuberculosis. And I forgot to put um, the first question on here. So this is a patient who's admitted to the ICU. I was actually on Christmas of this year. And this was Christmas Day. He was admitted to the ICU. He's a 33-year-old Hispanic male, admitted in respiratory distress, no known past medical history, had a rapid HIV test in the ER that was positive. The CD4 count was 94, diffuse interstitial and alveolar infiltrates, was immediately intubated. A BAL was negative, except for AFB and PCP. So clearly we need to treat the PCP. And he's very severely ill. So I don't have the audience response in here, unfortunately. At least I don't think I remembered to include it. Okay, so let me go back. How many people in the audience feel that you should start antiretroviral therapy that day in the ICU? Can I have a show of hands? Soon. What's that? Oh, within soon. 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 Okay. So immediate, immediate start of antiretroviral. He's not dead yet. Okay, pardon? He's not dead yet. He's not dead yet. Okay. Oh, there we are. Do you feel you should start immediately on antiretrovirals? Let's see what the answer is. Yes. Okay, good. So what if his T-cell count wasn't this low? So for which of these conditions would you recommend starting ART within two to four weeks? PCP? TB with a CD4 count greater than 350, less than 250, less than 50, all of the above, or 1 and 4. All right, so the majority chose all of the above. They would start it within two to four weeks, and then the second was one in four. Panel? I mean, I think the evidence is for one in four. You can probably argue for all the others as well, but I mean, for clearly from randomized trials, PCP clearly has shown that there's a difference. You know, the ACTG trial showing that if you start antiretroviral therapy within two weeks of, of diagnosing PCP, it does make a difference, and, and that's pretty clear. And then, you know, there are now three trials that have shown that, that in patients with HIV and TB and a CD4 count less than 50, there's a clearly a difference in survival in those that start at a lower CD4 count. You know, the other, the other patients, CD4 count of, of 250, you know, I would start them. I mean, the difference between immediate and, and early, I think you need to start them within, you know, a reasonable time. And that reasonable time may be after the, you know, within the first six weeks, but it doesn't need to be within the first two weeks. But in the early the first two weeks, the data is for one and four. Okay. Any other highlights from the panel? I mean, to me, the operative thing is two to four. And, I, you know, Carlos, Carlos nailed the data, and I don't see any reason, even when the C4 counts greater than 350, the study from South Africa showed that there wasn't any mortality advantage in that group, but it doesn't mean there wasn't some other benefits. So I think and they recommend starting by eight weeks. So, you know, four weeks, eight weeks, what? What's the difference? Well, I mean, there is a difference, right? What's the difference at eight weeks? Meaning in terms of, oh, about iris and whatnot? No, about drug interactions. Right, right. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you could, yeah, you could have a problem with that. But, I mean, I think you'd be picking an antiretroviral regimen that could work with TB therapy. Um, I, you know, I, I would lean towards earlier than later. But and I would say, again, for the data for, between one, for one and four is really within two weeks of starting. Mm -hmm. Right. And the reason I, I let it off this way is the guidelines recently changed. So if you look at the new antiretroviral treatment guidelines, which I'll show you a little bit of the data in a minute, um, and then if you um, 
look at what the changes are recommended. It's based on clinical trials. But the patient that we saw on Christmas Day, it's obvious that that person's survival is going to be incredibly bad and that you need to institute immediate TB treatment and from the data that I'll show in a minute, also antiretroviral treatment. But the less sick somebody is, you don't improve survival, although, although Mike set, points out that you might have other benefits, basically. So the PART trial was looking at ART in people with greater than 350 T cells. And what you can see is that uh, it was randomized to two arms within two to four weeks or waiting until the T cell count declined. And what you can see is that there was no treatment advantage as far as TB success. So starting somebody on ART treatment didn't improve the outcome of TB therapy in people that had higher CD4 counts. Now the SAPIT trial looked at people with less than 500 T cells at immediate versus delayed ART, and immediate was less than four weeks and delayed was eight to 12 weeks. And what you can see is that there was really no difference in mortality between those two arms unless your T cell count was less than 50. If your T cell count was over 50, then it didn't make a difference. They did have a better outcome, however, which was the data Mike was mentioning for a combined endpoint of AIDS or survival. So the downside of delaying treatment is that although it doesn't impact survival, you continue to get other HIV-associated complications. So it, it really does question, you know, why do we, why do we delay? Well, one of the reasons is the drug interactions. If you can delay a little bit longer, you might be able to get through the rifampin initiation phase. Although, as Mike points out, there are antiretroviral options still available. I mean, the other issue, besides the, the issue of the drug interactions, is just the practicality of potential drug toxicity, which is sometimes very difficult to interpret when you start eight drugs at once. And right. I think that's the only reason you might be tempted to wait a little bit if you could, and it doesn't right. make a difference. Right. And that's what we're about to show here. The Camellia study, um, two versus eight weeks, if your CD4 counts less than 200, clearly you did better if you got started within two weeks if your T cell count is low. Um, causes of death, TB was the most common cause of death in the first six months in the Camellia study. But, so, but I think something also important that you have in the slide, I mean, when people look at Camellia and SAPID, SAPID patients were outpatient, were doing a little better. The Camellia patients had a median CD4 of 25. So really, while it was under 200, it was really under 50. Yeah, it, they were very low, the Camellia participants. Ben? And Jeff, I'd make a point, too, about all of those Camellia and Stride and, and, um, and SAPID trials. These are all in clinical trial settings, too, so you get the advantage of not losing patients in mm -hmm. follow-up. So initiating ART is a little bit easier for people who are delayed than actually in the real-world setting. So yep. linkage with care is important. Okay. And then another one, the STRIDE, which Vince just mentioned, which was the ACTG study that just completed last year, basically looking at immediate versus delayed. Uh, patients had less than 250 T cells, and the median was 77. And they had a combined endpoint of AIDS or death. And you could see that the people that got the immediate ART had a survival advantage, but only if the T cell count was less than 50. So again, the sicker people were, the more you needed to start treatment within two weeks of diagnosis of TB. And then very, very early, which is one week compared to four weeks, this was a study in Ethiopia. Again, people with low T cells, the median or the mean was 76 at the week one and 90 at the week four. And the death rate was not statistically significantly different in either of the arms, basically. Uh, so it appeared that immediate wasn't necessary. You could wait a week or two, and the other studies indicated two was better than four to eight. So what I concluded uh, from this patient was that basically, and this is what the ARV guidelines say, if your T cell count is less than 50, you should start within two weeks. If it's greater than 50 and you've got markers of severe illness, you know, like severe TB, you know, low albumin, there's several other markers that they use, then you should go ahead and start uh, within two to four weeks. And if it's greater than 50 and they don't have disseminated or severe TB and they don't have other markers of severe ongoing illness, it's okay to delay up to eight weeks to start your ART 
if you're you know, having difficulty with access to some of the ARVs that don't interact as much with the TB meds. So I encourage you to read the new guidelines. Um, because we're running a little bit late, I'm going to skip over the cryptococcus one because I thought there was going to be a new guideline, but it didn't come out in time like I thought it was going to. Yeah, but as you go through those data, one thing that's really important about crypto, if you go back one slide, okay. you're going to show that there's a survival of benefit to delaying ARV. That was a study out of Africa where they did not manage intracranial pressure. Right. And so that's not our standard of care. It's not anybody, it shouldn't be anybody's standard of care. If the opening pressure is 43, you should be tapping that person daily, and that will get them through. So I don't think we know the answer. And I probably would have put them on steroids because of the PCP and a retroviral. I just blasted Yeah, yeah. I mean, people talk about this study in Africa where there was the excess mortality, but this wasn't a United States standard of care. And then there was one bit of data that I was skipping over. There was a study at retrovirus that looked at, well, what about culture conversion? Does it matter if you treat until people are culture negative and then start them on ARVs? And what they showed is that in their study, that if you treated to the point where somebody was culture negative before you started ARVs, there was a survival advantage. But the patients, this is a very flawed study, and they drew a lot of conclusions in their abstract at retrovirus, uh, but I don't think it's a conclusive study uh, based on what we know at this point. So the other one that I wanted to get to was, well, what about corticosteroids for the treatment of iris and in the setting of TB? You know, our patient, it ended up had cryptococcal meningitis, PCP, and TB. And so the question is, should we start them on corticosteroids because we were starting them on immediate ART and we were worried about in increased intracranial pressure? And we knew about this randomized study where people with TB were given corticosteroids, and what they were able to show is that prednisone was superior to placebo in people who had TB-associated iris. So clearly prednisone would treat PCP-associated iris, but does it do anything for TB meningitis in patients with HIV? And this sounds like it's a trick question, because if you look at any TB board question, if you've got TB meningitis, you're supposed to start corticosteroids. So um, this study that was also published last year looked at the immediate start of ART in patients with TB, and they didn't see TB meningitis, and they saw no benefit for immediate ART for people with TB meningitis. But all patients received dexamethasone treatment. So their standard for patients with TB meningitis was to start dexamethasone. Um, and so I think that the answer is unknown. Since that's the standard of care, you should probably, if you have TB meningitis near HIV patients, start them on immediate ART because it's severe and also start corticosteroids at the same time. And I'll turn it back over to Mark. To Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. So our last case, uh, and we're on time, uh, this is picking up from Connie Kellum's uh, presentation earlier today in trying to implement what we've learned from prevention trials. So it's a 23-year-old gay man, and let's say he's, he's HIV zero negative. Let's make him in Atlanta um, instead of Manhattan. It doesn't matter. He's sexually active. He estimates at least one to two different sexual partners per month, but there may be more. Uh, and he's heard of PrEP and wants your advice. He claims he would take the medicine regularly. What do you recommend? Start to not fear FTC, to not fear, don't uh, give PrEP and reinforce condoms or refer to another provider. Go ahead and vote. If you look like Herman Munster, you would have no sexual partners. <laughs> Does this mean you're going to pay for it? Yeah. Well, well, somebody is. All right. Oh, wow. Wow, so we split the difference. We got this is like a field goal. Uh, split the uprights. Vince, what do you think? Are you would you give the guy prep or would you unprep him? I, I wouldn't use prep. I'd go with number three for probably a number of reasons. I think uh, you know the clinical trial data still is is out on this. Uh, I think the management of these patients is uh, extremely difficult and challenging. What are we going to do when there are side effects? Who's going to manage them? And I think on a case-by-case -case basis, one could say we could make these allowances if it seems like someone's responsible and can follow up. 
but I haven't at this point accepted that as a, as a practice myself. Carlos. So, so I, I would do one and a tad of three. In other words, it's not either or. I think he needs, I would recommend PrEP, but I will also reinforce condom use. And I would really, you know, think about, about how long is he going to be in PrEP, what kind of information he needs. And, and, and emphasize adherence while the data from the overall, from the IPREC study showed a 44% efficacy overall in the trial. When you look, depending on adherence, those that had a higher adherence, over 70% adherence, the efficacy more, was like more than like 90%, and those that had more than 90% adherence, the efficacy was about 95%. So if he's only going to take it occasionally, it's going to be, you know, kind of adherence here or there, the efficacy is going to be very low. And I think we need to really emphasize the issue. This is not just giving you a medication. Mm -hmm. this is, this is, I mean, we really need to embrace the concept of combination prevention. And it's not a pill. It's really a combination of strategies that need to be adopted. But I would, I would think PrEP, a, he would be somebody that I would think about PrEP, first of all, because he's asking about it. And I think that at least that level of curiosity made me think that maybe he has thought about taking it. Now, if, you say, if I say you need to take it every day and if this, if, you know, all the different issues, and he says, no, that I'm really not interested, well, that's a different story. So, Carlos, you said this is not a medication. Could you finish that with saying this is not a medication, this is a change in your life? Because he's not used to taking no, medicine correct. every day. I right? think you need to talk that this is not just, you know, this is not a vaccine. This is, this is something that really needs to change your, your life, needs to change the approach you take to your life. But I would see it no different than somebody coming in with a blood pressure of, you know, 150 or 100. If he feels fine, he's asymptomatic. So do you recommend to decrease the sodium intake and exercise, or do you start him on antihypertensive medicine? I think you may do both. Carl, let me pursue that a little bit. Let's, this is your patient. Tell me how often you're going to see him in the clinic. How often are you going to counsel them? How often are you going to do an HIV-PCR? Tell me practically what you would do with this guy. <laughs> would, you, would you really give this guy Truvada? Okay. So, and, and we're assuming he's going to be pro provided, paid by his insurance. Yes, I think, I, think what, I think what you do, and his insurance, if it gets approved by the FDA, some insurance plans are going to pay, pay for it. So I think the whole issue is, is going to be about the reimbursement. But I think I would probably say, you know, he needs to be tested initially. And I think that initial testing, you want to be sure that he's not acutely infected because that's a problem. So I would be sure to test him with a fourth-generation essay at least, that get at least an antigen antibody test initially, not just a rapid test and not just some simple HIV test. I think after that, I would probably go ahead and, and, and test him on a monthly basis to get his, his refills. And, and the issue is going to be for how long he's going to be taking this. So I think it's an ongoing risk reduction counseling. If, if he, you know, two years from now, a year from now, he all of a sudden has found his his love of his life, he's got a stable partner, and they're both faithful to each other. It's time to rethink the strategy. Mm. Can, I, can I ask one thing to, yeah, this for was you all to address about provocative. that? Provocative, yes. We've got somebody from the uh, audience. Yeah. What about risk behaviors outside of a clinical trial? So My risk gestalt is that some people so, would increase their risky behavior because they would feel so, they had... So risk compensation has been a huge issue that everybody's been thinking about. And I think risk compensation, at least within the clinical trials, nobody has shown that there's risk compensation. Now, what's going to happen outside of clinical trials, we don't know. And again, we really need to think about the fact that that's part of the, hopefully part of the, when it says number three, reinforced condom use, I think we need to have prevention education. It's not just using condoms. We really need to talk about risk compensation. We really need to talk about, you know, you may not get HIV, but you're going to get syphilis and you're going to get gonorrhea, and there are plenty of other things out there that are really ugly that you may get with unsafe sex. So. Unsafe sex is not just HIV, and, and we live in the capital, so, the syphilis capital of the United States, um, yeah. and I think we need to be aware of that. So, this show of hands, um, most everybody here, based on the survey at the beginning of the day, are in pretty heavy HIV practices, pretty swamped with uh, patients who have HIV infection. Um, how many of you have the capacity to absorb another 50 patients who are not HIV infected and nurse them through PrEP? <laughs> Enough said. Hold on a second. So does, he need, does he need to be in an HIV clinic? I don't think so. Well, no, but I mean, that's for most of his practice, so that's kind of why it's a little bit. But he bit needs of... to be referred to, number, then the answer is number four, you refer him to primary care. Ah, okay. So, Andy, real quick. Uh, primary care will refer him back to you because they don't know what to do with him. <laughs> yeah. To a certain degree, it just sounds like you're asking the doctors a public health question again, and the answer is give him a pill. This guy tells you he's worried. He's, he's obviously worried about exposure to HIV. He's having exposed, he's exposing himself to HIV in a very high-risk community on a regular basis. I mean, this, is this sex addiction or whatever else? But this guy needs some help, but it's not a pill. 
I mean, here is somebody who says, uh, if you don't do the right thing now, then you'll obviously get to see him in your clinic later. Okay. Well, that's, that's the point, and that's why the, the question is there. And um, let's kind of go on with the case, because I think it explains what the realities are likely to be. First off, some data. This is the PrEP data. You can see there's some benefit. It's definitely statistically significant. However, based on my back-of-the-envelope calculation, <laughs> we have to treat 118 individuals based on the primary report from Grant et al., 118 people to prevent one new infection per year. Now, that's not that's all comers. The adherent, heavily adherent group, this would be different, but across the board. The cost of medication is $12,000 a year. Therefore, without including the cost that David alluded to of following this patient and testing, the cost uh, is uh, just from that is one new infection. It costs $1.5 million to prevent one new infection per year. The cost to treat an infected person per year is about 18500 So you'd have to treat... Um, You'd have to treat a newly infected person, you'd have to treat that person for 78 years to make up the cost of preventing that one infection. The cost effectiveness, at least for the population tested in the Granite All study with the adherence rates across the board, are hard to sort of hold the water of cost effectiveness, and that's another so, issue. So, so Dave Owens from Stanford published this month, the last month in the Annals of Internal Medicine, actually a real cost-effective analysis. This was on my envelope in the back yeah, of this my is, desk. So, so he actually does this for a living. That's and what did he say? The envelope calculation. And I think your, your calculation is pretty good. But what you're missing here is actually the, the infections averted by that individual. That you, so this is not, you're not just preventing one individual. Is that individual preventing other transmissions? So you're just counting one event here. If you look at the other way, uh, you know, the Owens data suggests that it is cost effective in a population like what we're talking about, an MSM population in a city like Atlanta, New York, where the incidence is about 3%. Okay. Well, here's the reality. Uh, okay. Who gets it? Who pays? Who follows and manages? Yeah. Who's medically and responsible? That guy, guy, one in a thousand, comes in in renal failure. Uh, are you, you didn't check creatinine often enough. Are you going to be taken to court? And what are the unintended con These are things that are going to be discussed more and more. Uh, but it, it's nice to have the option. But, um, whoops, I was going to ask another question, but I guess I didn't. The, the, the other part of this was that he, he calls you back and says, wait a minute, I went to get this, and my copay is $2,000. I can't afford this. So I'd, I'd refer him to the VA, I think. <laughs> now I'll send it back to you, Michael. Okay. Yeah, I, I think this is a, you know, it's a huge issue. It's one actually the VA has started talking about. I mean, we potentially could afford to do it. But the logistics are that we have no idea who would actually follow these people. And realistically, you know, in the grant study, we're talking about people that were seen monthly with regular counseling, with regular testing and HIV PCR. That's not going to happen in the real world. And I just have real yeah. pessimism about this being rolled out. Thank you. So to conclude from this part of the program, um, Art initiation is now being recommended more or less regardless of CD4 count in most circumstances. Of course, we want the patient ready to start taking therapy. That's a prerequisite, but all those things being equal, uh, the intensity of the recommendation is uh, increased with the things listed here. Um, many patients, as you heard, are diagnosed too late. Uh, I'm going to come to your question. Uh, to benefit... Uh, and we've got to overcome those barriers. Cost issues can confront payer choices. The timing of ARV therapy in TB patients is going to vary, but certainly those with less than 50 CD4 cells, more immediate therapy. And prep ready for prime time, there's argument both ways. So, and condom use, so the point was about condom use still is valuable and uh, it prevents other STDs besides HIV. I think everyone would agree with that. Um, yeah, we do have time for some questions. I, I do have uh, one that came in that the question about the tenofovir gel, um, that uh, it has been tested in MTN007. I like that because it's like 007. They did an anal intercourse study of tenofovir gel. And I haven't seen the results of that, but does anybody know if it works? Is, did James Bond get protected? Well, so, so I, don't, I don't know about the, you know, what, what happened, I mean, the tenofovir gel, first of all, it's not available, but tenofovir gel that was proved, that was tested in Caprisa uh, and then was tested in voice and the arm in voice has been stopped. When that tenofovir gel, is, it's a hyper-smaller 
combination, when it's used and Croydon presented data on tolerability, when you formulate it for, for rectal utilization, you can use that, condom, that, that compound because it, it produces a, a proctitis, it produces diarrhea, it produces irritation. So you have to reformulate it. So when you have a tenofovir gel, I think eventually when we have them on, on, on available in the drugstore, it's going to be like a vaginal formulation and a rectal formulation because yeah. they will need to be different. Now, that new formulation with less or smaller combination is being tested in 07. And I know I think the data will probably be at Croy next year. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, some politically active groups that are on the more ultra-conservative might say give them the gel because all that diarrhea and proctitis would prevent them having sex in the first place. <laughs> that may be a preventative means. But, um, but also one thing to keep in mind for both vaginal uh, microbicides and rectal is that oral sex, as you know, can transmit too. And so, um, uh, so that that's a way, uh, so it's not 100% uh, in that regard. It's an oral gel. Other questions does anybody have before we wrap up the session? Okay. That's fine. So we're, we're going to summarize. I think we can let uh, Carlos summarize his own talk. What were your uh, what were, <laughs> what was Carlos? What, what do you want us to leave with, uh, the three points from your talk? I think, I think the points that I have from my talk basically is that, you know, while, while about 20% of HIV-infected individuals in the U.S. don't know they're infected, I think a bigger problem is those that know they're infected and are either not linked to care or not retaining care. The second issue is that the ARDAS is the only uh, proven uh, evidence-based intervention to link patients to care, and that's, again, it's a, it's a short-term case management intervention. And, and, and that really emphasized to you that the importance of early misvisits that helps identify patients at high risk of poor outcomes. So, so monitor early misvisits as a very important marker of this patient is probably not going to do well. Or the opposite, really emphasize those early visits, and that's the time of significant intervention to prevent people from failing. Great. Thank you. And thanks to our panel. You guys were great, very interactive, and appreciate your representing the, the audience's viewpoint.